0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film Never Let Me Go. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast as we do chat about other stuff. But if you do proceed, there are a fair amount of plot spoilers that are quite crucial to the film. So if you haven't seen it, uh, it's probably best that you don't listen to this one. Although you'll still get something out of it. But if you do proceed, just be aware that there are plot spoilers. Enjoy. Hello hello. Good morning. You you almost busted me doing my sound check there. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> it was, I was actually just going, bada, bada. <laughs> which I think actually is probably not good because it's not representative of how I talk most of the time.
0: Only when you are uh, talking about a sixties movie, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're gonna talk about a sixties movie, then that's right on time. And actually, <laughs> looking at the sound waves, that is slightly louder than my normal <laughs> voice.
0: <laughs> oh dear. Like do you do any other waves. kind of sound check or is that just it?
1: Sometimes I sometimes I do a little sing, singing thing where I'm like I'm like, I'm talking on the podcast, yeah. It's like my R&B vocal. And also it's nothing like how I actually talk on the podcast. I never sound check by actually talking like a proper person. I just sound check to check that the mic is on and that sound is going in and that's enough for me. I don't actually care whether it's correct or not. Well, I do because I've set the settings up fine now, so that it's the same every time, but, you know. I, like, I still like to do a little sound check. It's part of my ritual.
0: Yeah, I do, a, um, I do a little sound check as well. But mine is like your typical sound check type thing, where I'm just there going, check one, two, check one, two, check. <laughs> one, two, check one, two, check one,
1: two, three. Lol,
0: he said three. It's funny. It's that, it's the most funny.
1: That's how all sound checks should go down.
0: <laughs> that, that is exactly how every single sound check should pan out.
1: Yeah, and if it doesn't, you should leave the gig that you have paid ninety pounds to go to at the O2 and just walk out then and there.
0: Yeah, if you can't hear a roadie doing a very depressed sound check into the microphone when you're at a gig, even if it's like at Wembley then what are you doing
1: yeah and if you can't hear the people in the front row of the audience or sort of no not the front row a couple of rows back sort of ironically cheering the roadie as if they're an act if you can't hear that then it's a bad gig and you
0: (laughs) i stand by that Uh, that's that's you know live or die territory right there
1: way go roadie and those say those same four or five men, of course, because it's always men, will sort of jump around and barge into you for the first three songs and then push their way out to get a new round of beers on the fourth song, and then push their way back six or seven tracks later,
0: yeah, because everyone knows that the most important thing when you're at a gig is to get really drunk and to yeah. miss the actual music um to go and get more drinks.
1: People, people think that gigs are about watching bands, but they're not at all. They're a chance for you to show off and make everyone look at you and get really drunk so that everyone looks at you. So you know, express yourself.
0: Yeah, this is, um, this is, this is never more true than at Kasabian gigs, where, where this is, this is basic. Kasabian gigs are basically the training grounds for terrible people at live shows.
1: (laughs) It's the the spring training of gigs. (laughs)
0: exactly oh dear have you actually Um, been to
1: see kasabian
0: i have seen kasabian twice how did that happen um well i really like their first album um it's got this kind of uh like 90s trip-hop uh quality to it is that has Um, it got the song in it that
1: goes that's my impression of a kasabian
0: song (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the second album. Um, right. The first album's actually got quite a lot of nuance to it um, and quite a lot of interesting electronica stuff. Hmm. Um, so I was a really big fan of it. And like the first thing I heard was Clubfoot and was like, oh, that's a cool song. And then I heard some of the other stuff off the album I was like, oh, cool. They've got this kind of electronica thing going on. It sounds a bit like Cooper Temple Claws, apart from a bit poppier. Hmm. Um, so I went to go see them based on uh, for their first album tour. And. Um, they they were really good, and the, the song sounded really great live. But I, I was a bit like, hmm, the people at this show seem to be dickheads. This is a bit concerning. Um, and uh, But they, they were very good. But then they released their second album, which is atrocious, and one of the most disappointing records I've ever heard in my life. I think there's one song off it which I think is any good, and the rest of it, it they basically just realised that people liked the vaguely rocky electro of their most simplistic tracks and ran with it. And that's what their career is now. That's what they do. Um, Whereas there was a lot more interesting stuff on the first album. Um, And so the second album was just that over and over again. It was like shit Clubfoot clone after shit Clubfoot clone, apart from a song called The Doberman, which was really interesting. And that's great. And I think they still play that live sometimes. But yeah, so I saw them at a festival after they released their second album. And um, it's like, no, they're fine, but all their songs sound the same now. And, and
1: festivals are often like the, the elements of a gig that I mentioned earlier times by several hundred because people have paid several hundred pounds to be there.
0: Yeah, which means that they're even more likely to just ignore all of the music whatsoever as well yeah. and just conti- can like continually go back and get even more expensive booze than at your regular uh, venue.
1: Yeah, I haven't been to a festival for I think maybe almost 10 years now. No, it maybe hasn't been that long, but it's been a very long time since I went to a music festival. And oh, wow. Yeah, I, I dread to think what the price of a pint at a music festival is now. Seven or eight pounds, probably. I sound yeah, probably, 100, 100 years old right now, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I want to go back to a festival again. I consider doing it this year, but um, maybe next year I might grab some tickets to one. I, I might be going to a, like some smaller things this year. Um, but yeah, I might, I might, I might go to a big one again next year if there's anywhere with a decent lineup.
1: Yeah. It kind of depends. I've never been to Glastonbury and I am very interested to go to Glastonbury at some point if I ever have enough money when the tickets go on sale slash can be asked to deal with the ticket rigmarole, but we shall see. Have you been? Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. You can say, um, oh, I'm going to go to Glastonbury. It's like, well, it's not really dependent on you whether you go to Glastonbury or not. (laughs) It's just sheer pot luck if you're able to get tickets. I've not been. Um I kind of thought it's too much effort and too much money when I can go to a festival of a slightly worse lineup um with much more ease and less stress. So like I I often I I often used to go to Bestival, which I really loved. Um the last couple of lineups I haven't been that interested in. Um but they used to have a really nice selection of music there and the atmosphere was always fantastic as well.
1: Is that the one that's a uh, Robin Hill on the Isle of Wight?
0: Yes, yeah. Although I think they might have moved it now.
1: Ah, it's a shame because when I um when I was a kid, we used to go to the Isle of Wight every summer and and rent out this house that was owned by some nuns that my gran knew, and um, that like my whole family would go. So it's a twelve to fifteen people maybe, and um, me and like all my young cousins, we'd always go to Robin Hill, and it was like that was the highlight of the trip. So good. It's like for listeners who haven't been to the racist little island that's hanging off the bottom of the uk um called the, <laughs> isle-, <laughs> called the isle of Wight, and that that's not a jibe that's they they voted quite strongly for ukip in a lot of elections so that that can be backed up by stats but we um it's very it's it's nice there's got there's some nice beaches and stuff and it was a good getaway but robin hill is this like little adventure park it, you know you couldn't call it a theme park but it's got it's got this amazing toboggan run and that was like the best thing and it had all these like climb really cool like climbing through the woods things and there were some animals and stuff i think as well but yeah it's amazing and then the idea of putting a music festival there that seems genius to me
0: yeah so they don't really open up um all of that stuff to drunk festival goers somewhat understandably but there's certain areas of it where you can still go so you can still do some of the trails and stuff like that And um, I always used to love that, like, there's, you know, the sort of woodland walk bit with, like, the plank ways and everything like that. Yeah. At Robin Hill. It's amazing. And there, within that, they'll put, like, secret stages where, like, acoustic acts will play. Um, At least they always used to. And that was really nice. Um, So it had this great atmosphere. And, like, it was a real mix of people. So, like, you had a few, uh, like, university students there. And I first went uh, when I was at university. Um, but then you also had like families there you had like 20 somethings there Um, and it's kind of it's a real sort of blend of music as well so there's quite a lot of dance music but then they've got like indie stuff they've got more like classic bands playing as well Um, it's yeah it's a wonderful festival or it it used to be a wonderful festival I have no idea if it's still got that same vibe but it always used to be great Um, it always seemed really cool
1: and in contrast to the the Isle of Wight Festival, which I believe has had Coldplay headlining 14 out of 17 times in the last decade.
0: But... <laughs> See, I, I've been to the Isle of Wight <laughs> Festival twice. I went I went when they restarted it, um, and that was quite cool. I think there was only two stages as well. So it was quite a small, mm. like, uh, although the bands were big, it was quite a small thing. Um, and yeah, it's it's all right, but that's much more like traditional as you say it was it, it doesn't have that same feel to it whereas best of all really felt nice
1: yeah although um, i'm not i'm not a coldplay hater anymore i think they have a couple of good tracks and it's on un, it's unfair to dismiss them as i have done in the past
0: it's because i spent so long playing coldplay s guitar parts in your band paddy you, <laughs> you, you, you got couldn't it couldn't escape it
1: you planted that seed and it has grown into an ugly tree
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's just a steady war of musical attrition <laughs> Just like Rob, stop playing that guitar line. No, you can't make me.
1: <laughs> I couldn't make you
0: no, it just happened yeah i would I would refuse to not use the delay pedal at every given opportunity,
1: yeah, well, now I have a delay pedal of my own, because you know as, oh, yes, as you they do. say, yeah, as they say in literature, in order for one to form a successful successful band, one needs a practice space and a delay pedal of one's own.
0: it is true. It is true. I think, like, <laughs> I think everyone should have a delay pedal, regardless of whether we're a musician or not. Yeah. Um, speaking of Coldplay, um, I, <laughs> I just uh, found this interview with Richard Ashcroft, Ugh. who said, "I wouldn't trade what Coldplay have achieved for any of my songs." as if there's a great difference between what Coldplay do and what Richard Ashcroft does.
1: I don't know, and I I can't listen to anything that Richard Ashcroft has done and enjoy it, whereas I can listen to some of Coldplay and enjoy it. I don't I, I don't know, something about Richard Ashcroft's voice. grates on me. Sometimes you know a voice just grates. Oh and yeah. I just yeah. feel like the Verve stuff is all really really boring and dull and all of I admittedly I've listened to very little of his stuff, but the little I have heard I would rather have a root canal than listen to again. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but you know you know what I mean about it being sort of like middle of the road indie rock that generally lots of people enjoy without really loving. Yeah. Um and uh and so like him saying that, like could I imagine like Metallica saying something like that? Yeah or like I don't know, like Dizzy Rascal, someone who really does something different, but they're kind of just they're stable mates, really, aren't they? Richard Ashcroft and Coldplay.
1: I guess so, yeah.
0: Um, Coldplay, uh, uh, The Verve have one good album, I think. Um, they they did an album called Northern Soul, which was their second album, which is actually really good. And it's got That's some great
1: tracks on it. Not the one with the one with the strings on and the one about the drugs on.
0: No, that is that. it's the one before that. Um, right. Yeah, the, the Bittersweet Symphony. The, that was three give, albums in? That was three albums in, yeah blimey um their first album is kind of vaguely psychedelic in like a quite cringeworthy way Hmm. i had no Um, idea but it but at least it's vaguely interesting um and then they kind of changed it up a bit for their second album which had much more of a like um although i think it was their second album maybe it was their third album i don't know Their, their early albums didn't do that well um but then, yeah, Northern Soul is a really, really great album um, that I think is quite underrated.
1: That's interesting. What also? What is a verb? Is is it a made um, up word?
0: It's what you do when you can't pronounce verb. <laughs>
1: the verb. It, it sounds like a robot mispronunciation, or like some <laughs> kind of <laughs> retroactively. It sounds like kind of Alexa or Siri got a bit wrong, but.
0: <laughs> no, ver- verve is like um, it means like vigor, doesn't it?
1: Oh, does it? I, I yeah. had no idea. And I like words. I'm a I'm a word man, but I've never I've never heard the the verve in any context other than the
0: band. Here we go. CollinsDictionary.com Who's so. Colin? <laughs> <laughs> he owns a lot. Of, he owns a lot of dictionaries.
1: This is why right. um, we we shouldn't record on Sunday mornings because I'm on my third coffee already. <laughs>
0: Um yeah, so according to CollinsDictionary.com, dot com, Verve is lively and forceful enthusiasm. Oh. Which is funny because that's the complete opposite of the <laughs> Verve's music.
1: That's that's exactly true actually. Their music is I mean, drugs don't work is a funereal dirge. That's literally the <laughs> literally the exact opposite.
0: Oh dear. Um, No, I I really like A Northern Soul. I kind of compare it to Dogman Star by Suede, Mm. and it's like their least accessible but best work. Um, Uh, I I
1: enjoy that album. I think it's great. It's really weird and fun and strange.
0: Yeah, Dogman Star is brilliant. Um, Anyone who says that the fight for Britpop uh, is between Blur and Oasis uh, is wrong because the best Britpop band is Suede. Um, yeah. And I'd also consider like chucking Manson in there as well. I know they were a little bit later, yeah. but Manson were a great band. Um, Manson, Manson, a man's son. Um, <laughs> not,
1: not to be confused with Marilyn Manson.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, don't listen to Marilyn Manson when you're looking for the band Manson. M A N S U N. They're really interesting, quite quirky uh, British rock band. Um, the the lead singer, Paul Draper uh he released a new album last year um like his first solo album even though Manson hadn't been around for quite some time and it was really good um really really great album um so yeah yeah there were, there there's there's lots of good british bands in the 90s you don't have to listen to you don't have to listen to oasis and the verve there's lots of other bands there that are worth listening to
1: yeah we uh, the company i work for just published Brett Anderson's autobiography actually
0: Oh, really? Quite,
1: yeah, looks quite interesting. I'll get you. Yeah, get you I've, heard,
0: yeah. I've heard it's super interesting. Because, I mean, he had a interesting life overall. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, I really wanted to read that, actually.
1: Cool. And there's, we can segue from that into this week's film because I, I re-looked at the book of Never Let Me Go and opened it, and it says England late 1990s in the opening of the book. So you'd imagine that maybe at that time they were probably listening to Suede. But I don't think they are actually listening to anything. At least in the the film's portrayal of the English landscape post-medical breakthrough, there's not very much of anything really, is there? It actually is a very, very stark portrayal of life. I mean, Kathy H lives in this, this really stark flat with very little decoration and it's very small and she seems to go from there to the hospital and back and that's about it.
0: Yeah, you're completely right, and I think what works really well in in both the film and the book adaptation uh, and the book of Never Let Me Go is the way that it sort of shows that stark contrast between what the what these clones do and what real life is. There is no real connection between the two. These people are a tool that is used, and they are completely isolated. So you never really get a picture of um, what regular human beings do in this in this universe because they're never they're never allowed contact with these people that save their lives um yeah. so it may it may well be that there are bands out there but the system that's set up for these people um doesn't allow them that kind of connection to the world around them
1: no and that's that's sort of fed to you really well in the film in little little scenes like where they they when they're at hailsham the the sort of school setting for the bit when they're when they're young and they're growing up um they role play ordering food in a cafe and then later on when they actually get to go out of their kind of sheltered place and order food in a cafe they they're kind of all a bit they're completely nervous and they don't really know what to do and it's yeah the the way that this film drip feeds all of that information really really works and it's um it's a masterclass in screenwriting and in showing and not telling and all of those things that you think of as kind of restrictive rules perhaps um, that people, when people talk about screenwriting, but this is really just a masterclass in how to feed elements of both plot and world building and characterization all through little things and little scenes that all do all of that, um, all at once really effectively, but also managing to maintain a very steady and actually kind of slow plot advancement. It, it's just a masterclass, really, isn't it?
0: It's done incredibly well, and um, both, I mean at some point we're going to get on to talking about how the movie was written and the relationship between Alex Garland and Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, but you can tell how closely they work together and how in sync their ideas are because Alex Garland's reworking of the initial story here is phenomenal. And like it's it's easy to understand, looking at his screenplays, how he was able to transfer so well into becoming a successful director in his own right because he understands pacing and plot in both novels and in movies and they are very different there's a reason why adaptations don't always work and that's because you need someone who understands how to create a good adaptation and understands where cuts have to be give made me and where two improvements minutes i've got to go and to be let
1: made. Claire in. keep talking
0: oh cool okay uh since since paddy has now disappeared briefly I will be taking over for the next couple of minutes, uh, which puts me in quite a difficult predicament because I was hoping that there'd be some kind of conversation about this going on. So instead, uh, I will just say a little bit about Alex Garland and how much I like him as a um, as a writer in general. So Alex Garland was um, hugely successful as a novelist through the beach, um, which, hello, are you back?
1: Yeah, what shit are you talking about me?
0: <laughs> I was just telling the audience how much I hate you. Um, yeah. And I only do this podcast out of spite to hold you back from doing something more important with your hour a week.
1: <laughs> I'm going to keep that in the edit, definitely.
0: <laughs> I just started talking about how much I like Alex Garland as a novelist and as yeah. a writer in general. Um, so, so yeah, he wrote The Beach, which is great. Uh, Follow it up by, by two underrated books, I think, in The Tesseract and The Coma. Um, which are both I think very I interesting.
1: still have your copy of The Beach, actually. By the
0: way. <laughs> That's all right. I've got like four copies of it around. Okay. <laughs> as long as you don't have the signed copy, which I think I've got
1: I don't think in it's my signed.
0: bookcase here. Yeah, I've, I've got a sign. Yeah, I can see it from here. Um, it's one of my prized possessions as a signed copy of the first edition of The Beach because it's one of my nice. favourite books. Um, but yeah, so then he, he transferred over to writing films. So he wrote uh, 28 Days Later, a.k.a possibly the best modern zombie movie yeah i'd say say
1: that's a fair that's a fair claim
0: um interesting theme wise interesting plot wise genuinely scary started off the whole fast zombies thing which has then been incredibly played out um you know i'm
1: surprised you're not going for what's that one where the kid from skins is dead uh, but he's dating a girl or whatever
0: oh right um (laughs) surprised you're not
1: going for that one (laughs) uh
0: i i've heard that's actually quite funny I haven't um, seen it. Yeah, I've not. I've not watched it. I know it's got John Malkovich in it, which is always a good slash bad sign. Um, a... So, yeah, I, I do want to watch that sometime though. Um, yeah, we could watch it on the podcast. It's romantic. we could. Yeah, that's, it could be that's... another Halloween one actually.
1: Um, that's a good idea. Yeah, when, we can... when we've gone insane from watching all of the Fifty Shades films, that could yeah, be the we'll, light, follow, light <laughs> we'll
0: follow it up from <laughs> that. Um, so, but yeah, so then he wrote he wrote Sunshine as well. Worked with Danny Boyle again on that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, which is a really in, I I think it's unfairly criticised. Sunshine. I think it's a genuinely interesting film. Yeah. Um. And I think it's a, it's still spectacular to watch. I heard um, someone.
1: I don't think I've ever actually seen it, but I heard someone describe it as the most realistic sci-fi film of all
0: time. Oh really? Yeah. Oh that's cool. I don't know how realistic it is. Um, but the way that they the way that they plot it and the way that it ups the tension. And throws a real curveball plot-wise about two thirds of the way through as well, which is a very it's a very bold move that not everybody likes, but I think it's great.
1: Hmm. I have heard that um, as well.
0: Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's a very interesting movie that goes in directions you don't want. But then obviously he also um, he also now directs himself, so he did Ex Machina, which is an uh, incredible movie, one of the best movies I've seen in the last couple of decades. Um, it's incredible um and uh now he's got annihilation coming out as well but um but yeah in in between all of this he also found the time to adapt never let me go um and it's great isn't it i mean it's amazing it's yeah um and like what i what i love about it is the way that it kind of it really builds your way into the world Without forcing you into it, there's quite a, there's been a few movies that kind of f- follow this kind of subject. Um, so there's The Island, uh, which I don't know if you've seen. I don't believe I have. No. Um, there's people living in this underground facility, and it's all very high tech. Um, and it seems it seems to be like a post apocalyptic thing on the surface, but in reality, they're clones of celebrities and rich people. Where if they need an organ transplant, they can just go to the clone. Uh, and, okay. and take some organs from them.
1: So it's not like they're generally available to everyone. It's only for like rich and famous people, which is more like how I imagine it would actually be if if it shook out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah, if if it did happen, obviously it would be so expensive at the first instance that it would be just cloning people.
1: Yeah, outright. That'd um, be like oh, a I'm... huge tunnel full of Kanye Wests underneath Los Angeles.
0: Yes. Yeah um <laughs> um but yeah so so that does it in a much more like on the nose way and it's like these people are clones and then they escape and they run around and there's explosions and stuff like that um directed by michael bay obviously it's actually one of his better movies that's directed um,
1: by michael bay well wow. yeah
0: directed by him before he got stuck in the transformers films if i remember correctly
1: i had no um, idea
0: it's probably the last good film he made because oh, I actually, re- I wrote down
1: <laughs> in my notes. I um, I wrote, I wrote a little note about how there's a there's a bit buried within the film of Never Let Me Go, and in the book as well. There's this whole thing about that when they're kids at Hailsham, they're made to make art, um, and they're the whole thing is like questioning whether they should be making art or what the point of it is. But it's kind of buried in there, and it's very subtle. Um, and then at, at the very end, when they go to see uh, Miss Emily, who was their teacher because they think they can get a deferral if they're in love and they can prove it because through their art or whatever. Um, she says, we, we got you to make art not to look into your souls, but to see if you had souls at all. And then that, that point is kind of left to stand and that's it. But I wrote down on my notes that like, it's so subtle and well done that you don't often see those kind of big philosophical themes handled with such grace in popular Mm. cinema. And I wrote down, you know, if Michael Bay did it, it would immediately be like, he'd start screaming right then and there instead of the later on scene where he gets out of the car to have a good scream. He'd start screaming and he'd flip everything over and he'd he'd tear out all the, he'd like tear up all his art and run away and then there'd be an explosion and then there'd be some big like thing at the end where like she was making some art and proving that she had a soul and being like and then the narration at the end would go, I know that I have a soul because I just did this painting and here it is, and it's like a picture of him or something. That w- yeah. that would have been if Michael <laughs> Bay did it. But Michael well, Bay was the first kind of overdone director of overdone things that came to my mind.
0: Well, the reality of what Michael Bay would do is much less subtle than what you envision had. <laughs> Yeah. Uh where it, where instead there's lots of explosions and they bring down the whole system and stuff like that. Um yeah. it's Mi- yeah. Miss Emily it's, would int- hand
1: them some guns and they'd storm the the government building and shoot everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um and uh, interestingly enough that the island was uh was uh, on the receiving end of two potential copyright suits. Oh no. Uh one for one for a film called The Clonus Horror. Uh, which uh, um, which is a film that's very, very, very similar in idea uh, and DreamWorks ended up settling out of court. Um, somewhat more sadly, Michael Marshall Smith, who's a writer that I really like, great great sci-fi and thriller writer, um, he wrote a book called spares, uh, which is all about people um, it, it's like a guard uh to this spares farm and spares are their idea of clones and he helps a load of them escape um and it was actually optioned by dreamworks uh to make a movie out of it uh then when the uh when the option expired they went ahead and made the island which is a movie about um you know a bunch of clones escaping a facility where they're normally harvested for organs Hmm. um And yeah, unfortunately, I don't think anything happened, but it was like, it's really shady goings on from DreamWorks that they just happened to make this movie after the option expired. Um, But yeah, so what's interesting is that you, quite a lot of movies that follow this subject matter, quite a lot of stories that follow this subject matter, it's very much about an escape from the system they're in. And like bringing down the system and showing the unfairness of it all. But what never let me go does which i think is so bold a move and so powerful move and spoiler alert for anyone who i know there's a spoiler alert at the beginning of the episode but here's another one in case you want to go and watch it and go and watch it for god's sake it's really good this is Um, a film that
1: is i think quite dependent on the the movements of the plot and the knowledge of kind of of it so yeah this perhaps isn't the best episode to listen to if you haven't seen the film
0: and yeah so go go and watch it you won't you won't regret it um but but what what this film does so well is that there's never that attempt to break the system. there's never that success at the end. and what you what you come to understand is that things have actually gotten worse just through these snippets of conversation you understand that things have got a lot worse than when these clone children were growing up um, so there's no there's no deferral for them. They don't get a few years together. there's no run away and live a life on an island. There's no outside liberator deciding that this system is unfair on these people and putting them all off like on a nice hawaiian island where they can live out the rest of their days nothing like that happens they fail at their deferral because there is no such thing as a deferral uh, andrew garfield dies having given up another organ transplant um and uh, carrie mulligan finds out that she is now going to give her first organ transplant and that's where it ends there's been no success to break this system and you learn that rather than this traditional training this traditional education that they receive now things are basically factory farms for these clones yeah you're never really
1: shown it are you that's another thing where it's it's incredibly subtle the only way you find out about this kind of huge huge thing in the world is the just Emily sitting in a chair saying saying to you um it's she only says about four sentences it's like hailsham was the last place to consider the ethics of donation and you you can imagine from yourself what that means whether that means like some kind of huge clone farm or like growing people in bags like in the matrix or whatever and it's just like yeah it's left to your own imagination but either way the effect the narrative effect is the same
0: yeah exactly um, and yeah, so you just have this one snippet of conversation from her, just one snippet of of rumor and hearsay from Andrew Garfield. and that's it. That's all you get. Um, you don't see if there's any like protests against the system at all. You don't see if there's anyone who disagrees with it being implemented. Um, all you get is these little tiny topics of conversation from a group of people that is marginalized and isolated who have this one glimmer of hope amongst their existence, which is taken away from them at the end.
1: Yeah, but the, the implication is very much that it isn't protested against, that it is accepted as normal. And as, because as, the other thing that Miss Emily, played by Charlotte Rampling, very good performance, she says, um, you, you know, if you ask people to return to the dark days of lung cancer and this kind of thing, they just won't do it. And you could absolutely imagine that happening, couldn't you? Because if you think about in kind of, tabloid culture driven britain how often is kind of is cancer a headline in the tabloids it's like if you give the people what they want in terms of that being a thing that they could get rid of in the same it, with this kind of magical solution it's it's kind of similar to brexit in a way it's being seen as this magical solution to the supposed problem of immigration suppressing wages or whatever you want to pin on immigrants wrongly obviously it's it comes from the same place so it actually that is a kind of really really interesting angle on british culture and how it would how this kind of thing would be dealt with and i think it actually absolutely nails it because eliminating cancer they wouldn't care about the ethics of the clones people just people just wouldn't would they
0: well, exactly. Um, and and it, it does bring up an interesting topic of conversation as well, which is about marginalisation of, um, of populations. And like you just look at the way that our press and our politicians talk about immigrants and talk about asylum seekers, um, talk about people of different ethnicities or religions. You look at the way that people have historically been treated of various different minority groups around the world in history, um, and the way that they're portrayed as not having equal rights based on nothing at all um and it's easy to see why this would happen these people are not seen as human they're clones of other people which then makes them different which makes them separate which makes them easy to manipulate um and makes it ethical for them to be destroyed so that someone else can live
1: yeah and Um, that's the the big success of the film is that you don't really, you think of them as human the whole time. And it's only until that final scene where she says it was to find out if you had souls at all that you realise that the rest of the population, which is just out there and kind of othered, and it's just this thing completely in the background and not depicted on screen at all, really. Um, You find out that they, they genuinely believe, without qualification, that they aren't human. But the film has spent the whole time convincing you, the viewer, that they are human. So when that scene happens, it's devastating.
0: Yeah, it's a. This movie is full of gut punches, um, and and that's the biggest of the lot. is Is that moment where they weren't testing these people to see if they could, you know, get a deferral or anything like that? It was purely to see if there was any sort of semblance of a soul within them at all. And of course, there is because souls don't exist.
1: Yeah. Like
0: <laughs> th- these people are human; they are clones of another human being they were looking for validation of the system that they had set up because otherwise it's mass murder on a massive scale like you 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 are killing these people so that others may live um and it's yeah it's absolutely horrible that scene it's like i've watched this film a few times i can't watch it too often because it makes me too sad (laughs) Yeah. And I know that I know that sounds a bit pathetic, but every time after I watch this I need to have a lie down after I see it because it's it's that impactful. Um and but yeah, it's um yeah, it, it does that so well. And it shows it shows this world where everyone is complicit in it. And even your even the characters are complicit in it. Yeah. Um Because like, it's
1: not like a lot of kind of, a lot of Michael Bay type films that deal with this dystopian vision have the it 's all about the characters struggling and kicking back against the system in a big way, and that 's where that's the narrative drive it 's them trying to break the system there's no real attempt to break the system at all the 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 biggest thing that they try and do is to get a deferral which doesn't exist, and then that's it it's like the system completely and utterly wins, and that's devastating as well
0: yeah yeah and 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 like you get the idea that they've all been brainwashed into their their pathway so so kathy has become a carer which means that she takes care of these clones as they give their donations um in a way she is then helping the system herself um by by helping these clones feel like they belong within this system and helping them feel at peace and although it is helping them in a direct way you get a sense that actually that's helping to solidify the system in place as a whole um you've got tommy who says oh i i never would have made a good carer um but i but i make a good donator or something like that doesn't he um and and again it's like he's bought into the idea that he's happy to to do the job that he was created to do um and it's it's so sad Um, They
1: they all buy into it because they know nothing else and they have no choice. It's like they they have a choice either start donating yourself or become a care and put it off for a little bit. What other choice do they have?
0: Yeah, and that's it. And and you you get this sense every so often that any attempt to escape would be futile. So you see them scanning themselves in and out of buildings every so often and things like that. That there clearly is this system in place to stop them from escaping. But a lot of the work that's been done in this film that really makes it so horrible and powerful, is that they are all happy, well, not happy to be in the situation they're in, but they don't think about escaping from the situation they're in. The only thing they can think is within the framework of the world that they're within. They don't think about running away. They don't think about anything like that.
1: Yeah, and that's, what, that's what's so interesting and so powerful about it, is it isn't preoccupied with the struggle. It's preoccupied with the machinations of the system that has won. And how that affects people on the ground, a ground level, which in a way is actually incredibly realistic despite the the subject matter.
0: It is, it is. Um it, it does it in such a incredible way. Um and like it and you're right that there's very few films that kind of treat this kind of subject matter in that way, or treat an oppressed people in that way, where it's all about working within the framework in like movies in general and books in general like they look at how to beat the system like the hunger games for instance is all about beating the system and overthrowing this evil system um what i'd like to see more of in the hunger games is um you know that there's there's those people from that from that district where they are trained from childhood to be the greatest killers and that's their purpose an entire book set in that childhood, I think, would be much more interesting in seeing how that operates, instead of seeing them then going to overthrow the evil government and everything like that, seeing how they fail to do that and how they sit comfortably within this horrible regime which has brainwashed them to become killers in order to maintain and prop up this state.
1: Yeah, that that you could if that was, you know, say the first two-thirds or even three-quarters of the book, and then the last quarter was actually the Hunger Games, you throw in a bit of action scenes just to get, you know, to get that kind of thing in, to get the the gruesomeness of it that attracts people. But it's, yeah, that would be really, really interesting. You could do it with all of the districts, really, because they're all kind of, it's a hierarchical system between the districts and all that kind of thing. So there's intrigue in every level, really.
0: Yeah. Um, there, there's so much, and there's so much scope for that in... In science fiction in general. And and there's been a few science fiction books that do it quite well. Um, so so uh The Running Man, uh, which has been which has turned into a wonderful Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, don't get me wrong, I love the Arnie movie a lot. And that follows the traits of overthrowing the government and everything like that. But the, the original book by um by Stephen King under his pen name Richard Backman. Um it's all about just playing the game and and doing it and quite happily doing it in order to provide for a family and accepting that there's no way out of it and and it works incredibly well and and yeah never let me go i think is probably the best example of that i can't think of a book that's done it better and i can't think of a film that's done it better no i can't either um and yeah it's um it's great it's it's really good
1: yeah it's really like everything about it just works really really well i think the it seems slow paced at first, but because every scene is revealing something about the world, the pace is actually incredibly fast in terms of the world you're building in your imagination based on it. And it's almost, it's more like reading the book in that sense, I suppose, than a lot of films that are adapted from books. Like It, it, it takes the world of the book and really brings it to life on screen, but still leaves a lot to your imagination. And it's a very successful adaptation of a book in that sense. Like It really understands how to use the medium to adapt a book.
0: Yeah, it's it it's it's great. It does it in such a good way. Um yeah, the only the only other one that I can think of that does it as, as well nearly as well is a book called Feed by M.T. Anderson. Um which is which is all about a um it's all about a a future where everyone has like a feed in their head, so like they're all microchips so they can get access information constantly. Like if everybody had a built-in Google Glass effectively um and in that like uh the the lead character meets this girl it's they're all teenagers and he meets this girl and they sort of vaguely fall in love and stuff like that but she has a very early version of one of these feeds in her head and her family doesn't have enough money to like afford an upgrade and it's slowly killing her um and at the end of that there's no revolution or anything like that everything returns back to normal much like 1984 everything returns back to normal um, and, and that way, you can send a really powerful message. And I and I think, yeah, never let me go. It sends that message, and it it makes you ask ethical questions that you might not ask, and makes you think about the way that people are treated in ways you might not think about them as well.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of very very powerful messages you can take from it. Yeah, about the the ethics ethics and treatment of people, philosophically. What is a soul? What makes us human? That kind of thing. But it's like within the, in the context, you come away from it going, "Why would anyone think that a clone of someone wasn't human?" But then, when you look at the way that people discuss refugees, then it's no different, is it?
0: No, exactly. So um, the app
1: the applications of that I think are actually more relevant now than when the film came out, which was twenty ten, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah. Twenty ten. Yeah. And yeah, like it, 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 it does make you ask these questions and it makes you think about what would we do if this discovery was found like would we act in the same way as we act as 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 society as a whole acts in never let me go i like to think we wouldn't but if that discovery was if that discovery was made back in 1952 for instance how how well would it pan out
1: I like to think that we wouldn't, but my, the, you know, the the indications of politics and economics and how power is structured and how it all, you know, f- trickles upwards towards those who already have wealth and power. The indication is that that's exactly how it would go down, probably, and especially the way that this film also makes you think that, or at least it made me think that, is that, like I said, everything, all of the the places look shabby. For the time that it's supposed to be portraying, the hospitals all look really old and smelly, and it's it's not overdone, but it you know the the viscerality of it, the kind of greasy spoon cafe that they go to looks like it's from the 50s. You know everything about it looks old, like older than it is, which you know impl- implies, at least to me, that that's the the life that they're living, and that a lot of the people in the the lower echelons of society are living while the rich are harvesting their organs, but you never see that.
0: Yeah, it's um yeah, it's this movie is something special and it's yeah. Oh, <laughs> it makes me so sad. Yeah, and that's so why as you
1: say I I love it. I think it's an amazing film because it's so powerful and so interesting and really really gets your brain f- it, you know, makes you think, make you think. But um it just yeah, it is it is devastating. You can only watch it every so often. I think it's only it's maybe the third or fourth time I've seen it. I went to see it in the cinema, after which it was followed by a and a with Ishiguro, the man himself. And then I got the DVD. We had the DVD. But yeah, you you could only... I was glad that I hadn't seen it for quite a few years because there were a lot of things that I didn't remember and a lot of things that I did. I mean, I completely forgot that Sally Hawkins was even in it. And she plays the the young teacher who sort of reveals to them... The, the secret of what they are. And she says, you've been told and not told. And she just kind of, she tells them everything, basically. And then they all just kind of sit there and don't really react to it. And it's like, they've already been conditioned so young to just kind of accept it and to go along with it. And her performance is fantastic.
0: Yeah, she's absolutely wonderful in this. And and she, she's that one moment of resistance in the entire film. um, And she gets sacked and never appears again. Yeah. Like, she's no that, longer working at tailshim yeah and and that's that that's the extent to which they get to that that's the only moment of revolution and all it is is they find out what they are a little bit earlier than was planned that's the only that's the only thing they are able to do um and yeah it's uh but yeah she's she's amazing in it um sally hawkins i i, I can't think of anyone in this film who I don't like I think everyone was perfectly cast as well
1: no as as I said when we discussed whatever other film had Kira Knightley in it um this this I think is her best performance by far as Ruth the kind of the the jealous friend who then obviously ends up creating being the block in terms of the romance. Um, largely because obviously Kathy H played by Kerry Mulligan, obviously great performance. She's in love with Tommy from a young age, but Ruth steals her and gets in the way. And it's all about that. And eventually Ruth um, lets it go. Obviously she, she when they meet up later in life, she then apologizes for being jealous and being how she was, as if her kind of becoming the eventual donor she was supposed to be completely changes her mind and about it. And it, that then reminds you that sort of, Physical degeneration and health and stuff can obviously really affect the the mind as well, and it gets you thinking about health as well. And that's that's so yeah, it's so interesting. And she plays that really really well throughout all the different stages of the character development.
0: Yeah, she doesn't really have a big role in it, but there's almost as much screen time given to her younger self at Hailsham than there is to her as an adult. Um, but she puts in such a magnificent performance here, and you really see like. The 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 frailty behind her, the the anger behind her, the panic behind her at every stage that she goes through. So when she's very young, when they've left Hailsham and they go to the cottages, you can see that there's this insecurity there about how she's learning a relationship from another couple who've learned it from television um, because they don't have any communication. They don't have parents. The only thing that they've been around is what they were taught at their schools and then learning off other people who were taught at those schools or learning off fabricated relationships they don't have that communication with the outside world too um and yeah it's it's really interesting the way that she plays it um and and all of that insecurity there which is on show and like she she's an an intensely dislikable character by design is she's the block to stop the romance from happening and that's that's even further intensified by the fact that these these clones only get a very short amount of time They only have a short amount of time with the ones that they love, and she stopped that from happening at an early age. Um, But even within that, she's still a victim. Um, Whether it's down to her, like, dislike of being left alone, or whether it's down to her panic of needing to find someone to be with so that they could then become carers and get a little bit of a longer time together. Um, It's, yeah, there's all these different things on play, so you can't entirely see her as the villain of the piece because the villain of the piece is the society as a whole that's being created
1: oh yeah a hundred percent all of all of her misdeeds pale in comparison to the way that they were treated and the the ethics of how society raised them and brought them up and everything that was kept from them when you, when you think about the context of them having grown up in this sheltered place and then moving to some cottages and not really being allowed into the outside world, you think it's, it's miraculous that, they, that they've developed in the way that they have developed. And that you're supposed to be thinking about that the whole the time, but it's, a, it's an underlying thing that's in the background and then sort of raises its head every now and you think now and then, and you think, oh, wow, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But you're not thinking about it because you're thinking about the potential romantic story. But then there's always something to get in the way of that that comes from how they were raised.
0: Yeah, and it, and it it bleeds through to the other characters as well. So at the cottages, you've got uh, what well, uh, Rodney and Chrissy, played by Donald Gleeson and Andrea Riseborough, yeah, um, who I... are like they become sort of like their mentor figures, as it were, even though they're only a few years older. Um, but part of it is all down to the fact that that Rodney and Chrissy they've heard this rumor that there is the chance to be deferred if you find true love with someone. Um, and it's it's so heartbreaking this moment where and it comes just after like a scene of comedy almost where they can't they don't know how to order at a cafe
1: yeah it is and funny like, it did make me laugh
0: yeah it's a bit of um, light relief it's just it's this one moment of, of 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 humor where where rodney and Chrissy have to help them order and they all end up ordering sausage egg and chips and coke because that's what they heard other people that's what they heard rodney order so they follow him um, and, it, and it kind of it's it's very funny, but it also solidifies the idea that the, um, that the world around them is built so that they don't interact with the outside world successfully. They don't want that interaction. They don't want the chance for these people to meet other people because then they know there's this risk that they could change people's minds so there might be sympathy for these clones.
1: And that it would force you to confront the ethical questions that you don't want to have to answer because it would take away from... It would make you feel bad about getting a new lung.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's, all these, um, there's all these questions asked. But just just after that moment of humour, um, there's, this, there's this moment of heartbreak where Rodney and Chrissy realise there's no hope for them to get a deferral because they'd heard this rumour that at Hailsham... There was a special way to be deferred, and they were hoping to get contacts from these Helsham students who've appeared. But there's no, there's no such thing, and 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 that's it effectively. Like you don't, you don't see them be taken away to be become donors or anything like that. Um, it's just that's what's going to happen no. to them.
1: It gives you that little bit of plot hope where you're thinking maybe it's true. Maybe they, maybe something is special about Hailsham. Maybe it will be okay for them after all. And it's like, no, of course, what, what Hailsham as a concept represents is that that last bit of struggle against the system that was always going to just swallow it up.
0: Yeah. That last moment of humanity, it's almost like they're treated like free-range chickens rather than battery-farm chickens.
1: Yeah. That's a that's a good way to put it, actually.
0: Um, where it's about treating them correctly when they're at a young age to give them a decent level of education and keep them healthy. So no smoking, play outdoors, stay slim, that kind of thing. They want these organs in peak condition, not for the well-being of the students necessarily. There may be some kind of sympathy there, but really it's to make sure that they're in prime condition for when they are needed.
1: Yeah. It makes you ask, is there sympathy there or is there not? And you're never actually quite sure. Yeah. Because of the context.
0: And but you yeah, you, you, you never really understand how much sympathy there is, but you 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 get the idea that it's not all to do with sympathy, it's to do with the well being of the organs themselves, not the people in which the organs are hosted. Um and it's it's really it's really well done, but it, it leaves you shaken to your core the whole thing. Um But one thing we've not talked about yet, which we probably should do given the theme of our podcast in general, is the actual relationship itself. Because I think it's a really well done romance, like love triangle thing. It is, but I I, I think
1: it actually, the, the way the film is structured makes the romance take a bit of a back seat, but you're still really, really rooting for them to get together. And then it's still very, very satisfying when they do. So in terms of that, it really works as well on both that level and on the kind of, dystopian ethical question world building side as well all of that works together very very well but I feel like the romance is secondary to that but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work
0: oh yeah I mean primarily much like the book primarily this isn't a romantic film but it's got it's it's a romantic angle and it's a romantic framework for the characters themselves so eventually eventually Tommy and Kathy do get together but they they don't have as much time together as they should have had um, Tommy's already done two donations, hasn't he? By the time they get together, and um, he's
1: the way he looks physically is very, very well done as well. He's sort of wearing a long, baggy coat and his head shaved, and he just seems really, really tired and and passive. And then you see him trying to run and then coughing and like, yeah, that's very, very that lends it a real air of tragedy that obviously mirrors the the physical degeneration that you know that the rest of the world is now able to counter in an interesting way
0: as well yeah exactly so we would get a donation um and we would continue going at the expense of another life that has been set up entirely to serve our own um and it's yeah it's very it's very well done because throughout the movie tommy's set up as like not like a peak physical specimen but a very lively enthusiastic happy person so then when you see him for the first time in ten years where he's he's gaunt, his head has been shaved, he's clearly tired, um, it, there's a real impact there. Um and it's the same it's the same when you when you see um uh what's what's her name? Uh Ruth again. For yeah. For first for the first time in a long time. She's like she's, walking on
1: a Zimmer frame like an old lady.
0: Yeah, because she's now done two of her two donations herself, um, and you can tell that like there is there's no hope for these for these people, and and no one cares really about their well being apart from the carers. Um, so when when Ruth finally dies, for instance, when she does her final donation and and completes, which uh, can I just say I really love the terminology that they use. Yeah. Um, it's
1: so brilliantly it's, euphemistic, and they all use it as if it's not a thing, which is obviously the way that what makes it so powerful.
0: Yeah. Um, so they don't die; they complete. That's their that's the terminology used. So when when Ruth completes, she takes they take the organ out of her, um, and you can hear that like her heart has gone and everything like that. And there's no attempt to um, to try and stabilize her or anything like that from the doctors who are doing the the surgery. They just cover up the machinery turn off the machinery yeah and that's it and then they leave her there um there's this there's this complete disconnect from everyone involved in the system to these people
1: yeah it's really it's really interesting and it makes you think as well obviously like a clone of a human is still human but it's like everyone the attitude of people just treating you as if you're not human because you weren't the one who was originally born or whatever that's the point at which you think about that as well when you see that you see her die and you think that's going to someone else, someone else who is considered human because of the original. Yeah, that that it makes you think about that again when you see someone die.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's so well done. One one thing that I find interesting as well is that they like the the systems are never truly set up. Um so you do you get sort of like hints from people that they're their originals are like seen as scum, seen as like lower status people within society, so you wonder where do they get that DNA from? yeah, um do people sell their DNA in order to make a bit of money to allow there to be a clone of themselves that then used for these transplants maybe or or is it done on a rotor basis or something like that? You never really get that idea from them.
1: No, it's never explained to you as the viewer because the film is from the point of view of the clones and you only know what they know. So when there's a bit where they, they go out to the cafe and they think they might have seen Ruth's original some woman working in an office and then they, they look and it's it's nothing like her and they're all very disappointed and that's her kind of angry moment and she does the anger of it very well uh, but it's like you're not really sure what she's angry about because what difference would it make to see your original but obviously it would be an incredibly powerful thing. Um and she's just angry about it and she goes they model us on junkies and criminals and that kind of thing so that kind of implies that they they've heard rumors that are probably true but you don't know for sure that the government are just taking people who are at the low on the lowest rung of society which again makes it all the more kind of sinister doesn't it
0: yeah it's it's there's all there's all these rumors spinning around um but none of them are truly explained and and you're right. It's because you're from this viewpoint where you don't they don't feel the need to tell these people what their role is in the society that they're helping prop up. They 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 clearly are seen as people who don't need to know why they exist, who they exist from, and things like that. Um, and yeah, it does create this real sinister feeling when they like suggest that it's people like criminals. And you're like, why are they taking their DNA? How are they getting their DNA? Um, it's yeah, it's it's really quite something. Um, and
1: that's then in the back of your mind as the rest of the narrative plays out.
0: Yeah. And 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 that final the final key scene in the in the film where they where they meet with Madame and with Miss Emily, um, you get no sense of remorse from the people that have been involved in this. Only that they don't really know how to deal with the situation, even though it's happened many times before. They just they they kind of they drop the bombshell that there was no, there's no hope for them, that there was never any hope for them. Um, And that's it. And then they leave. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's really horrible. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The way they talk about it is like, like they're saying to them like a child, look, you know, we really, really tried to, you know, to make this nice and to make this ethical, but we just couldn't fight it. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like soz. Um, we can we can keep your drawings if you like
1: (laughs) yeah Um, and there's a there's a like a painting of hailsham up on the wall of their house which is really interesting as well because it's like that's a symbol of this thing that they were involved in that they look back on as like a good thing that they did which in the context it's a good thing but really it's like actually yeah they were as she says it was the last place to consider the ethics of donation and they hold that up as having done a good thing when actually it's terrible
0: yeah exactly like comparing it to our society it's abhorrent within their own framework it's better than what currently exists which yeah is hinted at as being these factory farms factory harms factory farms for humans um so yeah it's yeah it's so unbelievably bleak but in a good way
1: it's it's an incredibly bleak film, but it gives you enough little pockets of hope and intrigue to carry it as a very very compelling film. It doesn't feel throughout it um, like you you know you don't feel completely sad throughout the whole film because there are there are some nice little bits to enjoy, like when she's listening to the music, and obviously when they get together in the end, and there are some funny bits like when they're they're imitating the TV show and that kind of thing. That. That all really, really works and helps to keep the the threads of hope that keep you watching. But then at the end, yeah, it does feel like a real <laughs> you need to lie down.
0: Yeah, and so like the last ten minutes of this movie, uh, it's something else. Um and like I'm not a crier. I've never been a crier. But this is this movie's probably the closest I've come to crying at a film. Yeah. Like that final scene where you're just like, oh my god, why? Why have you done this to me?
1: yeah but also the final scene when she there's a little bit of voiceover talking about how she she likes to imagine that all of the things she's lost have washed up in this place and the way she says it she doesn't sound sad um, she doesn't sound happy but you feel like she's at peace if not happy or sad and that does take this this sting out of it a little bit but also you think how can you be at peace with this as well it's a very it's a real conundrum at the heart of it that does make it yeah very devastating I well, cried it, the first ex- time I think
0: exactly it's 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 like she's at peace but she's partly only at peace because she's so bought into the system that she's in um it really reminds me of um and i'm sorry for bringing up another one of these movies but it really reminds me of starship troopers where um there's you were going
1: to say the bridges of madison county
0: (laughs) (laughs) um yeah where in starship troopers um there's like this almost moment of clarity where the main characters realise that they're basically propping up this fascist human state. But instead of that, instead of realising it, they double down on it. And at the end, it's whole, it's this whole, we'll keep fighting thing. And it's like, we'll keep throwing ourselves into these horrible situations on behalf of this state that doesn't care about us. And so rather than rather than reading the end of Never Let Me Go as like a, like a, okay, she's at peace now. It's just, she's, she's accepted her place within the system. And she's content with her place within the system. And like, she talks about like the the context of like everybody completes, you know, even the people who are donated to, they'll die eventually. But it's like, yeah, but you're going to be around for 30 years tops, prolonging the life of other people beyond 100 years when you have, when you should have just as much right to a successful long life as they do.
1: Yeah. And the fact that she's at peace with that or seems at peace with that is obviously yeah, it's it's a nice thing but also a bad thing. So it's a it's a very complex. It's a nice nicely complex realistic ending to it, isn't it? With yeah. that it doesn't try and make a heavy-handed point like Michael Bay would.
0: Yeah, there's no explosions here. Not even no. an emotional explosion. They could it's... at least
1: have had the car blow up at the end. <laughs> it looks like it's, yeah. it looks like and, it's old enough.
0: Andrew Garfield's there screaming at night. And then suddenly the car just explodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, it it does so well. And with such subtlety as well. It's a very subtle film when it could have been incredibly heavy handed.
1: Yeah. It is. I feel like, yeah, if, if it wasn't based on a book by Ishiguro, who is one of the greatest living novelists. I mean, he's just an incredible writer. I haven't read all of his books, but every single book of his that I have read, I've loved. I think it, he's obviously great at creating stories and characters and building worlds and if it if that world didn't exist and someone had to create it for cinema I think it would have gone down very differently.
0: Yeah, it would have done. Um it's yeah, it's it could have been very unsuccessful. Um out of interest go and watch The Island. Yeah, uh, which is like the antithesis for this. And you can see what happens when someone with less care and attention tries to do a movie like this. Um, I'm
1: now also wondering what it would be like if Richard Linklater directed it. Just like all of (laughs) the the slacker clones just like smoking joints in their their little farmhouse and trying to form a punk band and stuff.
0: (laughs) I could see that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they think about running away, but they don't because they're too busy. Um, Yeah.
1: If Darren Aronofsky made it, it would just be an hour and 45 minutes of Tommy screaming outside in the dark.
0: <laughs> Why am I a clone? Clo- cloning is wrong.
1: Yeah, and then five other Tommies come out of the woods and start saying cloning is wrong, cloning is right, and then they have a big fight.
0: Ah, uh, we we do that poor lad too much of a disservice. I, think. I know, I know. We're very hard it's on It's a it's a gentle ribbing. We actually love you, mate. You you make you make yeah. interesting movies, even if they're heavy handed.
1: Hey, he's a man who's got vision and he tries to do interesting things, which is more than you can say about a lot of directors. Well,
0: yeah, exactly. Like he does, at least his films are interesting, even if they don't always work. Yeah. Um, speaking of directors though, this was Never Let Me Go is directed by uh, Mark Romanek, who's primarily does like music videos. And he's done some of the best music videos ever made um, over over his time in uh in in video making um so he did like are you gonna go my way by lenny kravitz he did um closer by nine inch nails
1: i didn't know this i'm looking at his wikipedia now he did shake it off
0: yes yeah um he did uh, uh 99 problems
1: and then um, as well can't stop by the red hot chili peppers which was on mtv2 um, every five minutes when it yes. first came on, yeah. <laughs> it, it would man. be
0: there'd be it would be can't stop, then another song, then can't stop, then another song, <laughs> then can't stop.
1: It's um, it's a really stupid video, but actually quite cool. Where they're they're sort of looking through the through these weird like plastic pipes at each other, and yeah, it's very, very simple but very good.
0: Yeah, and and yeah, so he also did like um, he did hurt by Johnny Cash. Uh, Hella Good, No Doubt. Uh, Macy Gray's I Try as well. Um, He's done like, he did a Weezer song. He did El Scorcho by Weezer. Wow. Um, Nova Came for the Soul by Eels. Um, An amazing video director. Absolutely amazing. Um, But then like his feature films, the ones that I've seen have all been really good as well. So he did Never Let Me Go and he also did One Hour Photo, the Robin Williams movie. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so you kind of, It'd be interesting. I've not read any interviews with him or anything like that, but it'd be interesting to see where his sort of like passions lie and sort of like why he decides to do the projects that he does.
1: Yeah, he's a very interesting guy.
0: Um, But yes, but he does an amazing job here. The the direction of this film is phenomenal as well, on top of everything else. It's not just like the plot is amazing. The acting is amazing. The script is amazing, but also the direction is fantastic. Yeah.
1: It appears that he has not directed a feature film since because he's been too busy with other stuff, which is interesting because this is such a directorial triumph that you think he'd have wanted to, to build on that.
0: Yeah, but the closest city's the closest city's got is that he he did an episode of Vinyl.
1: Ah, um, I've not watched any of that.
0: Which I've heard is very good. But um but I've not I've not watched it.
1: Yeah. And um, he's done some adverts as well.
0: Okay. But it's like, yeah, it's it's interesting that he's he's not um he's not done more since so it, it, i'd be i'd be interesting to learn more about why he chooses to do what project he does because he's clearly there's clearly people that would want to do a um a, a feature with him
1: yeah hmm very good well done well done to him and to alex garland and Ishiguro. all of them i think it's um the film is a real a very very bleak triumph
0: yeah um Bleak and triumph, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> definitely features well.
1: Yeah. So, um, do you have anything else to add?
0: Um, oh, I haven't actually looked up any trivia. Let's have a little look. See, um, see if there's anything interesting.
1: Have a peek. I think all of the all of the cast have since all gone on to even bigger and even better things, haven't they? So it's uh, it's an interesting one for for them none of them it wasn't the beginning of necessarily any of their careers but what they've done since proves that this is a film where they were all you know getting their getting themselves out there and honing their skills and putting in performances on which you can genuinely build a great career off
0: yes yeah you're right there that um like none of them this wasn't their breakthrough performance for any of them really but um it's one it's every single one of them it's one of their best performances um so yeah here we go so never let me go is carrie mulligan's favorite novel um which is something i share in similar with her actually interesting i'd say it's probably my favorite novel your absolute of, fave or one of my absolute faves i don't think yeah. i could put a finger on one novel specifically that i love more than any of the others but um yeah but this is one of them yeah i would um, definitely
1: put it up there top top five probably
0: what are what are your favorite novels then patty
1: I know. I always, as well as that, I always go for the remains of the day as well, which is Ishiguro. It's, oh, it's yeah, his, that's um, It's not as interesting in terms of societal and philosophical debate. It's just a genuinely devastating love story, which is really, really good. But I, I always struggle to think of books when I'm asked that kind of question because it's so hard. It's so hard to choose. You don't know whether to. I feel like there are so many kind of. There's like big fantasy series like The Wheel of Time and stuff where I've spent invested so much in reading them that i i want that to be to be able to to say that that's your favorite thing but it's almost like a different category isn't it it's always yeah. it's always a tough one
0: it is it is a difficult one because yeah i'm trying to think of what my favorites are and i can think of a handful but yeah
1: i want would, to I would go out and look at the bookshelf that's out yeah. there in the corridor
0: okay homework for next week yeah give give me five books
1: some some lists yeah (laughs) have a week have a week to think about it yeah yeah um i don't want to say infinite jest because it's obviously the kind of bastion of pretentious white boy hipsterism but it is an absolutely unbelievable and incredible book
0: not uh what what was it we were coming up with
1: infinite guest See,
0: season season infinity from the last oh, yeah. episode <laughs> yeah and and infinite groundhog guest groundhog
1: day but with food <laughs> infinite Vest yeah infinite david guest <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh dear. yeah um yeah yeah i don't think yeah i'll have to think of of a five for myself as well i've I could, i've got like 3 in my head I yeah, root through my shelves.
1: Five. Yeah. Make a list.
0: Um, sure. So, uh, so um, Mark Romanek also uh, really loved the book and sort of jumped at the chance to do it so much so that he dropped out of directing the Wolf Man, which went on to be something of a flop. So bullet dodged. Oh.
1: Yeah. Um, he dodged the wolf bullet.
0: Yes. <laughs> dodged the dodge the wolf bullet. Um, but yeah, so that that's probably it from a trivia perspective, I think. Cool.
1: That, that That's good, though, because it really shows that everyone was really behind the the project, which really, really helps, especially if it's come fr- coming from, you know, complex and nuanced source material that has to be handled in a certain way for it to make a successful film, and they nailed it.
0: Yes, yeah, they did a phenomenal job with it. Cool.
1: So how, uh, how are we going to rate this?
0: Oh, God. Uh... <laughs> How many tears shed out of twenty? Yeah. How many was, feelings of existential dread out of twenty that this film cause? Yeah.
1: I was going to go. with How many donations before you complete? But
0: oh yeah, okay. Usually let's go with that. On their third or fourth.
1: But yes, yeah. You get to you get to donate small small ones. You know, just like a little. You do do a finger first, and then your yeah. spleen. Nobody needs a spleen, right? <laughs> I'm not Punkies. even sure what a spleen is. Yeah.
0: A, a spleen is another word for verb isn't it buddy
1: <laughs> Oh yeah that that popular 1990s indie pop act the the spleen <laughs> the,
0: the spleens <laughs> they supported the breeders <laughs> Um yeah uh, Great band. Do, do, do you want a little a little biology based on my vague knowledge of the human body
1: oh, of of the spleens Yeah
0: So so if I if I remember correctly I think like um, it's to do with like the immune system and like making sure that the blood's still good and stuff like that.
1: So it regulates the immune system.
0: Yeah. So so like if there's bad stuff in your blood, the spleen is responsible for like making sure your blood is still good. Oh. That that, that sounds that's my That sounds like the spleen's really important. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my vague knowledge of what the spleen does based on like learning about stuff in biology over ten years ago. So dear listeners, if I've got it completely wrong. Yeah. Um, let me know.
1: If there are any splenologists listening in.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. So so if you were donating to Never Let Me Go, how many donations would you make sure you got through before you completed?
1: I would give it an 18 out of 20. So 18 yeah. out of
0: 20.
1: Yeah. 9 out of 10. I thought, I thought about even going as high as 19, but it's so devastating that I don't know, I feel like a 20 would have to be a film that was just perfect on every level and also one that you wanted to return to all the time maybe, which is kind of a very elusive category. I don't know what the magical 1920 is going to be but yeah, I'll give this an 18. Cool. How about you?
0: Yeah, for me I'm going up to 19. Cool. Um, I love this movie. Um, The only reason I can't give it that 20 is um, just because I, I can't bring myself to watch it all the time. Um, yeah. I can only watch it every so often because it really it's an absolutely devastating film um, one of the most powerful but also most shocking movies I think I've ever seen
1: yeah I, I concur with all of that so let's see I'm looking at the chart now is that the highest we've done Oh it's no, I I gave Cloudburst a nineteen. Okay. Ah oh, okay. that's cool. So and you gave it an eighteen. So it evens so out to an eighteen equal... point five, which is still equal. So it's equal top of the charts. Equal top of the charts. Um, <laughs> William and Kate the movie is still the lowest <laughs> <laughs> with an an evened out score of four. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it a five, you gave it a three
0: uh what what would how much would it have needed to get to get off the bottom
1: um let's see there's quite a gulf let's see the bridges of madison county i gave a 10 you gave a seven that evened out to an 8.5 and i think that's the next one up so there aren't many oh no 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 twilight was 6.5 i gave it a six you gave it a seven so 6.5 so it's need it would need an extra three points to get above twilight
0: uh i think that's fair because that that was a it was really bad, not just in a so bad it's good way yeah
1: yeah but those those are the only three single digit films in the charts um bridges of Madison County, wills and Kate and Twilight, which will be the films shown at our film festival
0: uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, i we should do a film festival that'd be great
1: i I actually think that would be an awesome thing to do
0: yeah. Oh
1: dear! Find some so, s- tiny, small cinema. Yeah, we could we we could make this work. Look it could happen.
0: So, have you got any more news for us, Paddy?
1: Uh, no, that's actually it. See, it seems like people are enjoying Mamma Mia. Most people agree with us that Pierce Brosnan's a genius, and it came out just in time for, as Adam pointed out, Mama's Day, which is
0: <laughs> that's today true, actually, as
1: we record this. So re- retroactively, that's our Mother's Day special.
0: Yeah, that that is exactly what we had planned. Obviously, from day one.
1: Yeah. Uh, but no, <laughs> I don't have any other correspondence or anything. Do you? No, no, no. That's it for me. Cool. So next week, as promised, we're going to be watching a Nicolas Cage film. Yes. This is um, Captain Corelli's Mandolin.
0: Oh, okay. Have
1: I thought you seen you'd it?
0: go down the leaving Las Vegas route? I was trying to work out what movie. I've never seen is. that.
1: I mean, the the cage the cage pantheon has you know a lot a lot of incredible films in it but i was intrigued by this one because i remember the book being absolutely massive in the 90s when we were kids and it was like i was too young for it but my my mum had it it seemed like everyone's house we went to had a copy of that book in paperback and then i think the film came out and kind of flopped so i'm interested to see what it's like
0: yeah no i'm uh i'm i'm keen to give it a watch uh yeah let's let's watch some cage it's going to be a yeah. nice palate cleanser after never let me go
1: yeah yeah that that's true that's true it's it's not going to be as devastating or maybe it is who knows i've never seen it
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've not seen it either um I've not all read, i know is that it, it was incredibly panned by critics wasn't it
1: yeah um, and I, i've not read the book it's either, set, it's set in the war so i'm going to be bored by it i already know but
0: question is is gary oldman wearing a fat suit if so oscar noms obviously
1: yeah yeah if if it's it's a crime that Nicolas cage didn't get the oscar for playing churchill in captain corelli's mandolin <laughs> <laughs> captain churchill's mandolin <laughs> when nicholas cage literally puts on a fat suit dresses up as churchill and plays a mandolin for two hours
0: uh, i'd watch that i'd watch that over darkest hour
1: oh, <laughs> i genuinely would
0: um well you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see someone do a movie about Winston Churchill's painting. And and maybe that happens in in uh, in darkest hour maybe it all ends of him doing a painting and oh, yeah. then just and then just someone whispering, "That's not very good, is he?" Going, <laughs>
1: "What is it? Is is that a a dog? Is that a chicken?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> Cuz yeah, lots of people go on about Winston Churchill's passion for painting. Um which he, um, which he, which he did alongside everything, and then obviously when he retired, he, he, he did lots of painting, and it's like, it's he, he's a competent painter.
1: I'm looking at I'm looking at some of his stuff now, the goldfish painting. Oh, it's 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 abstractish, competent yeah. enough. It, it's certainly a lot better than I could do.
0: Yeah, he's he's a competent painter, but at the same time, if I had that much free time on my hands, I'd probably feel like I could do a decent job.
1: Yeah, of course you could. If you had that much time and, and money and energy,
0: you certainly could. Yes. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, Winston Churchill. All right painter. Yeah. Nasty man. Apparently, <laughs> apparently wore a fat suit everywhere he went.
1: Yeah, he wasn't actually fat. It was, it was power play. <laughs> he,
0: he was actually like Vincent, adult-man. and it And it was two kids in a coat wearing a fat suit
1: yeah the top one of which just happened to be bald and angry
0: <laughs> it was it just put a baby at the top
1: <laughs> a jolly baby
0: yeah a jolly baby at the top and then it was two kids in a trench coat
1: <laughs> yeah I'm looking so yeah I'm looking forward to watching Nicolas Cage portraying two kids in a trench coat <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh mate I'd watch that film yeah. Live action so, adaptation of, of Bojack Horseman <laughs> with Nicolas Cage as <laughs> Vincent Adultman.
1: I would watch the heck out of that.
0: <laughs> oh dear.
1: they could have um a real life horse playing Bojack Horseman. Yes.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm on board. Hey Netflix.
1: Yeah. We <laughs> you know you listen people to that to us. And obviously you owe us money from all the ideas that you're going to steal from us. Yeah. But um, yeah, steal this one first. Ahead of, what was it? Groundhog Food Day, Guy Fieri repeating. Uh,
0: um, What was it? Uh, Season Infinity. Season (laughs) Season
1: Infinity. infinity. Yeah. Actually, I don't know which one I want to be the higher priority. We'll let let you choose, Netflix. We'll let you choose. We trust
0: you. you Yeah. Just get in touch, guys.
1: Yeah. Please do. Send us your big checks. (laughs) All right. Um, So if you like what we do, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It would be very much appreciated. If you want to get in touch, email us, bigboysdontcrypodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at bigboysdontpod. Get in touch. Love hearing from you. Did you cry at Never Let Me Go Too? Were you devastated? And do you need some comforting? In which case, I'll send you my favourite Nicolas Cage videos.
0: Yes. Yeah. If you need any any help after watching this very sad film, then um, get in touch and we will provide you with amusement.
1: Yeah. Cage-related amusement. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll be back next week to talk about Captain Corelli's mandolin. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.